Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting March 25, 2016, we begin our focus on the new WPJ Spring issue, cover line Black Lives Matter Everywhere, starting with answers from around the world to the issue's big question, is affirmative action necessary to overcome institutional racism? We'll also point out other top features in the new spring issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, the terror attacks in Belgium have underscored yet again the reach of the Islamic State, which takes credit for Tuesday's bloodshed and an insidious problem that shows no signs of going away. Here in Washington, the Brussels bombing has renewed calls for both tolerance and toughness, President Obama, on a historic trip to Cuba, condemned the attacks and offered intelligence help to the Belgian government. He then went to a baseball game with Cuban President Raul Castro. Republicans said that appeared to mean that Obama was downplaying the attacks, noting that Obama once called ISIS the junior varsity. But White House strategists have long said that giving additional presidential attention to terrorists merely plays into their hands. This is obviously a big issue during the ongoing presidential campaign, with Republican frontrunner Donald Trump talking about sending 20 to 30,000 troops to the Middle East and Ted Cruz calling for, quote, saturation bombing. As for Obama's Cuba trip, he said the Cold War is over. He and Castro made small steps toward wider ties. An invasion of American businesses may be next. Travel and tourism look like the first beachhead, but telecommunications Financial firms and the food industry are also eyeing the island. At the White House, I'm Paul Brandis for World Policy On Air. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Black Lives Matter protests across the United States, that one from Dartmouth University in New Hampshire, have discomfited normally quiet college campuses and tense cities. Policemen on the front lines, the officials behind them, and politicians at all levels, including candidates for president from both parties. But the BLM phenomenon and racial disparities that provoke it, conscious or unconscious, thoughtlessly casual or fatally violent, are not found only in America. Struggles against racial prejudice and discrimination are being fought in many places around the globe, and Black Lives Matter Everywhere is the theme of World Policy Journal's new Spring 2016 issue, with this big question feature, Is Affirmative Action Necessary to Overcome Institutional Racism? To survey the answers from a panel of international contributors, I spoke again with WPJ Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick recently for this podcast. Jaffa, welcome back to World Policy On Air. Thanks for having me. Uh, The first response is a definite and personal yes from New Zealand with the headline, How Far We Have Come. Uh, Tell us about that author and the kind of racism he faced peculiar to his country. 
The author is Joshua Hitchcock, who is Maori, uh, which has been a historically discriminated against indigenous group in New Zealand. Uh, the Maoris have suffered from the lowest life expectancy, the highest rates of incarceration, the greatest rates of poverty. Um, and as Joshua points out in his piece, even with new measures of affirmative action, particularly at the university level, uh, when he arrived on campus, he definitely did not see a lot of Maori faces. He definitely felt like a discriminated minority, even when he was given some opportunities to excel. Well, what action has the New Zealand government taken to counter discrimination against his people? Well, Article 19 of the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act actually protects various forms of affirmative action that the New Zealand government has put in place. And so these forms include uh, several seats that are allotted to Maori in Parliament, um, university quotas that allowed people like Joshua to go and get in, um, and a series of reparations that the government's begun paying to the Maori tribes for land theft and other crimes committed under colonialism. He notes a significant change in the legal profession, his calling, and so critical in continuing to press for Maori interests. Yeah, so when he attended law school, which was the early 2000s, he said there were very few Maori students. And fast forward 15 years um, later, he's attending a Maori lawyers conference, and there are 150 Maori law students, which is pretty remarkable when the entire country has about 1,000 Maori lawyers and 150 law students show up. Still, he admits that affirmative action does not have widespread acceptance. But his bottom line is very clear and poignant. Read us that final paragraph. Sure. Affirmative action is absolutely necessary to overcome institutional racism. In New Zealand, we often say this. For Maori, simply getting out of bed in the morning is a political act. Affirmative action has helped me and many others like me get out of bed receive an education, fight passionately for Maori rights, and work with those who have come before us to tear down the fabric of institutional racism. Wow. The next response comes from South Africa with the headline, Necessary but Not Sufficient. First, tell us about that author. So Milani Smuts is a human rights lawyer, and she's also the founder of Streetlight Schools, which is a nonprofit that has developed a low-fee private school model in South Africa. The school aims to equalize an education system that till today continues to disadvantage black students. And just an interesting twist, um, Milani is actually the great-grandniece of Jan Smuts, who was a prominent South African leader right before apartheid began. South Africa has what some might call a politically incorrect or at least insensitive term for affirmative action, positive discrimination. How does Smuts put it into the context of her country's dramatic ending and condemning of apartheid? So given South Africa's apartheid legacy, there's been this special burden on the state to acknowledge its role in perpetuating an unequal system for 50 plus years. And there's also an an increased demand for it to work to implement measures to counteract that apartheid legacy. So two decades ago, uh, the post-apartheid South Africa of the Mandela years put a wave of positive discrimination measures in place to support the country in this transition to democracy. And so that included the government quotas, scholarships for students in underrepresented fields, tough anti-discrimination laws, but it was seen as necessary for this transition to democracy. Kind of an admission of past guilt. She makes a special yes. mention. She makes a special mention of a policy called Black Economic Empowerment, or BEE, and a system of B points. Say more about that. 
B is one of the biggest government measures to begin to address uh, racial inequality in the professional space. It has several components, which include reducing share prices for persons of color so that they can be owners of companies more easily, and also providing tax breaks for private firms that hire black employees. And B points are distributed based on the makeup of these companies, uh, with more points being granted to companies either run by persons of color or with persons of color in kind of senior executive positions. The more B points a company accumulates, the more state tenders they get, the more major contracts the state will award them, and as I mentioned, the tax breaks that they can receive. So it basically creates a scoring system that incentivizes employing blacks by promising government rewards. Uh, Smuts also talks about a virtual cycle as opposed to the well-known vicious cycle when it comes to enhancement of political power. Sure. So, you know, positive discrimination, whether it's playing out at the university level or the professional level, um, allows groups of people in a South African context, non-whites, entry into positions of power. And so the idea is that these newly admitted individuals who have been historically marginalized are going to accelerate the transformation of these spaces through a virtuous cycle because once they're inside the system, they're able to uh, change it from within. They're able to pull in more blacks, more naturally. They're able to foster an environment that is welcoming to non-whites. And yet she finds all that insufficient for truly overcoming institutional racism even after 20 years. Tell us about Black Diamonds and the uncomfortable lessons she sees emerging. Letting a group of individuals, um, in this case, these black diamonds win at the same game that caused institutional racism to flourish is not enough. And so these black diamonds are the elite black middle class that have exceptional wealth, power, business success. I mean, these are the people who have benefited from the B program. They are in senior levels of management. They are running companies. But there is a disconnect because these black diamonds don't reflect uh, South Africa at large. The majority of South Africans actually have not benefited from all of these reforms, not at the university level and not at the professional level. And so even today, you know, two decades post-apartheid, South Africa remains one of the most unequal societies on the planet. Sort of like Oreos. They're black outside, but she sees them as uh, more like what whites used to be inside. Yeah. And I, the, the more, uh, or perhaps less PC term is calling them coconuts. Huh. Given the insidious, nonviolent, uh, self-perpetuating nature of the racism she continues to see, what does she say South Africa needs to do? Well, South Africa needs to recognize that racism isn't um, always this flagrant abuse of power, that it, that it is, in fact, more subtle and insidious, which means that no single policy like B is going to rectify um, this historical legacy of apartheid. There needs to be waves of economic and cultural and legal reform um, for a racist society to overcome its past. And these reforms need to happen even earlier than the university level or the professional level. They need to happen at you know, the primary education level. They need to happen in the healthcare sector so these people are given all of the advantages that whites have been given. In Malaysia, affirmative action is known more commonly and again some would say more clearly as preferential treatment, uh, but our contributor from there says even semantically it is not right. Who is she? Shermani Patricia Gabrielle is a professor in the English department at the University of Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur, and her research focuses on this post-colonial legacy in cultural studies with an emphasis on national identity and migration in Malaysia. Perhaps uniquely, Malaysia's policy is targeted at the country's dominant ethnic community, the Malays. What kind of help is involved? Why should they need it? 
So the new economic policy, or NEP as it was uh, called when it was implemented in 1971, was this race-based plan of social engineering. It was basically designed to compensate for the wealth imbalance created by a century or so of colonial governance. It called for aggressive improvements to the Malay economic uh, status because despite the cultural and political power they had, they didn't have a corresponding economic power. And so these improvements included giving them better access to land, physical capital, job training, and uh, access to public institutions. She cites the importance of riots in 1969. Yeah, so the riots of 1969 are uh, referred to as race riots, and they offered the pretext or perhaps the justification for implementing the new economic policy because Sino-Malay tensions could no longer go unaddressed at that point. The heated debates that had existed for decades between Malay groups wanting radical measures to ensure their supremacy and Chinese groups calling for their interests to be protected had resulted in this bloody day of violence claiming the lives of almost 600 people and actually leading to the resignation of the then Prime Minister Tunku Abdul Rahman. She argues that it is the policy of preferential treatment itself that institutionalizes racism and produces new inequities. Say more about that. Yeah, so the problem with these policies is that they allow the government to implement race-based quotas that favor, um, the Malaysian term is, Bumi Puteras, which is this like state identity of ethnic Malays who are regarded as being indigenous to the land and the nation's history over minority groups like Chinese and Indians who are deemed to have their cultural roots elsewhere. So under this quote-unquote guise of affirmative action, the states actually intervened in the cultural life of the nation. So minority groups might be able to be a part of the body politic, but they're denied cultural membership in the nation. Um, so affirmative action draws attention really to the differences between communities rather than exploring their commonalities. People begin to identify less with an ancestral race, but in terms of their cultural rooted Malaysianness, um, which is the author says renders notions of racial ingenuity increasingly untenable. And what does she think the government should be doing? The government should be calibrating along lines that are commensurate with the nation's actual history. It shouldn't be viewing race as something that's beyond themselves that needs to go unacknowledged. Affirmative action policies shouldn't be purely based on cultural identity. They need to include the racial history that comes along with it. Finally, we come to a country trying to avoid racial factors while still dealing with institutionalized disadvantage. The headline is Israel, colon, no silver bullet. Who wrote that one? This was written by Sigal Alon, who's an associate professor in the sociology and anthropology department at Tel Aviv University, and she's also the author of Race, Class, and Affirmative Action, which is a book that compares race-based affirmative action policies in the U.S. to class-based affirmative action policies in Israel. The Israeli policy involved is focused on higher education, a gateway, of course, to economic, social, and political opportunity. When did it start? How does it work? So the policy began in the mid-2000s by four of the country's uh, most selective universities, and it was targeting students who were disadvantaged on the basis of class rather than race. So they, they came from poor homes, they were provided with poor high school opportunities, and they were given a leg up in the application process. And so this program increased the number of students in elite universities who were ethnic minorities, new immigrants, 
impoverished. Um, about half of all of the students who've been admitted under this policy are Jews of Asian or African origin, referred to as Mizrahi Jews and Arabs, who are um, also historically at the bottom of Israel's stratification system. Alon suspects that ethnic conscious admissions would be particularly controversial in Israel. Say more about that. As I said, you know, the, the people who are benefiting the most from these policies are the Mizrahi Jews and the Arabs. But not all Mizrahi Jews are, are impoverished. In fact, some, many of them are seen as quite financially successful. So to a lot of people, people Mizrahi Jews are undeserving if they have the financial means. Um, and the same claim could be made against the Arabs, though, you know, they tend to be the most disadvantaged group in Israel. There are several successful professional Arabs who send their children to private schools, for example. And so do they really need affirmative action? Do they really need a leg up in getting to university? Um, and, of course, in Israel, there's always going to be this antagonism towards giving Arabs special treatment when many Jewish Israelis resent that they don't participate in certain civic duties like military service. So why should they get a leg up at the university level? Alon admits that ethnic-based affirmative action would produce a higher level of ethnic diversity, but finds a dilemma on the issue facing uh, her country and others, including the United States. Uh, how does she define that? Tigal frames the dilemma as whether you settle for a lower level of socioeconomic diversity in order to maintain a higher level of this racial or ethnic diversity, or do you try to kind of infuse these bastions of privilege that these selective universities are with socioeconomically disadvantaged students, but at the price of lower rep representation of racial and ethnic minorities. So you can, you can either have the racial diversity or you can have socioeconomic diversity, but you can't have both of them. So what's her conclusion, that last paragraph? Well, she says, both race-conscious and race-neutral modes of affirmative action fall short of creating broad diversity. The idea that there's a silver bullet model of affirmative action that can generate broad diversity at elite schools is frankly an illusion. Yafa, thank you. Thank you. Yafa Frederick is managing editor of World Policy Journal. She reviewed answers to the big question, is affirmative action necessary to overcome institutional racism in the new spring 2016 issue? Cover line, Black Lives Matter, everywhere. Also featured in the WPJ Spring issue, Black Lives Matter, everywhere, you'll find articles about black power in the French Band News, politicizing black death in Latin America, and building solidarity across borders. And listen next week when our podcast will begin a related two-part audio feature, Black and often blue in the EU, with special reporting from Poland, East and West Germany. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>